Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Good evening, everybody. I want to start tonight by uh, sharing with you something that's like a pet peeve of mine. What a good way to start a homily. Let me tell you something that I find annoying. So one of the things that I find annoying, uh, it's like an intellectual pet peeve, this annoyance that I, it's in the last couple of years, I see it more and more online and comments at the bottom of articles, in articles, people making comments in podcasts and blogs and videos on YouTube, where people just hurl around the accusation that someone is a Nazi. Am I the only one that gets annoyed by this? I get annoyed by this, right? It is, he's a Nazi, she's a Nazi, they're a fascist, he's a fascist, that person's Hitler. Just this hurling around this insult that this person, this thing, they're a Nazi, this person's Hitler. The, the, this, it's a logical fallacy. You probably maybe remember from, if you took like a philosophy 101 class back in the day where you get to learn about logical fallacies, like the ad hominem logical fallacy, right? You don't attack the argument, you attack the person, right? Or my favorite, the post hoc ergo propter hoc. That's a fun one to pull out at a party, right? That's a post hoc ergo propter hoc. Oh, you know, you can sound very smart while you're trying to, you know, insult somebody. Anyway, this, this whole thing about, like, pointing to someone, calling them Hitler, or pointing to Hitler as a counter or as an example, it's, it's got its own logical fallacy name now, right? So that's how often it's getting used. Reductio ad Hitlerum. Right? That's, you know, that's how you know it's official when they put it in Latin. Reductio ad Hitlerum. Okay, why am I bringing this up? Because there's something similar to this in the church. There's something similar to this in the church. I don't know, stay with me. I started with Nazis, but stay with me. When people reference Mother Teresa, I know, I'm not making good transitions, but just please stay with me. This is what I mean. This is what I mean. Now, look, I love, I love Mother Teresa. I love Mother Teresa. I'm inspired by Mother Teresa. I think her life is so challenging, so beautiful. I think what she has done is so incredible, the order that she has started. I think she's got some of the most beautiful quotes. I think her, her personal biography is incredible. I, I love Mother Teresa, right? I love Mother Teresa. But it does, it drives me nuts. This is another pet peeve. It's an annoying thing to me when... When people are talking about the saints or when people are looking for saint quotes, it's like there's no other saint. It's like the only person that people can think of is Mother Teresa, right? When we're trying to think of a quote to put on the wall, how about a Mother Teresa quote? Oh, great idea, right? There's other great quotes. There's other great saints. Okay, so having said all that, let me tell you a Mother Teresa story, okay? So that's where you're supposed to laugh, people, okay? You're with me? All right. So, let me tell you this Mother Teresa story. I just wanted to preface all of that to say, like, I know there's other saint stories, but this one's, really, this one's really fitting. Okay, so Mother Teresa. So, Mother Teresa is the foundress of the Missionaries of Charity. She's the foundress of the Missionaries of Charity. The Missionaries of Charity carry out some of the hardest, most grueling work in the church, hands down, far and away. These are women who, they have given up everything, and they live lives of extreme poverty and penance, Right? They have two outfits. They've got the sari, the habit that they're wearing, and they've got the other one that's dirty, and they just go back and forth between the two. They essentially sleep on the ground. They brush their teeth with sticks. I mean, it's, it's grueling. To the point where almost zero Westerners are able to make it in the order. 
They, they, if you're a Western young lady and you show up to be a missionary at charity, they're like, you're probably not going to make it, right? You're probably not going to make it. That's how intense their work is. They serve the poorest of the poor. There's a never-ending flow of homeless men and women and children to shelter. There's a never-endless stream of people who are dying that they literally like peel off the streets and they they give them care as they make their way from this life to the next. They, like for every one person that they get to, there are a thousand more that they missed. Like it's an unbelievable sort of supply and demand schema that's going on here. A never-ending work that they're involved in. So one of Mother Teresa's spiritual daughters, she approached Mother one day, one morning with an idea. She said, Mother, instead of praying our usual holy hour in the morning. That's what they would do. They would spend in their constitution, they spend an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament every morning in front of Jesus. And she said, instead of praying our usual holy hour in the morning before the Blessed Sacrament, what if, what if we prayed a half hour? What if we prayed a half hour and with that extra half hour, we could, we could ostensibly reach more people. We could find some more people who are sick. We could find and feed more starving children. We could care for more people who are sick. We could find more people who are lost, more people who are orphaned. It seems, it seems noble. It seems logical. It seems rational. It seems reasonable, right? This proposal that she made to mother, and, and mother heard her daughter's proposal, and she responded to her after considering it for a moment. She said, tomorrow, my dear daughter, tomorrow, I'd like you to spend two hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament in the presence of our Lord before you go out to serve the poorest of the poor. Two hours. So, like, not only was she not on to something, like, Mother saw that she needed, she needed to be bent back in the opposite direction, so she prescribed an extra hour of prayer in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Like everything that mothers, missionaries of charity, everything that they did for the poor, everything that's good that they did for their neighbor, it flowed first and foremost out of this intense communion, this deep union with Jesus, right? Next to the image of the crucifix in every missionary of charity um, monastery or, or mother house, you've got the image of the crucifix and then the words from Jesus on the cross, I thirst. It's deeper than just, you know, bodily thirst. It's not just simply that he needed his, he needed water in his body. It's what she discerned, what the saints have discerned through the centuries, that he's thirsting for souls, right? So they would sit in this burning gaze with Jesus. Their hearts are set on fire, right? Recognizing him hidden in the distressing disguise of the Eucharist. And she would say, if you cannot recognize him there, you will never find him in the distressing disguise of the poor, Right? She wanted them to burn with love for him there so that they would burn for love for him out there. That was the first move. That was the first move. Like everything that the church does in her social mission, right? everything that we do, she, everything that we do for the poor, for widows, for orphans, everything we do for the betterment of Humanity, all of the acts of kindness, all of the acts of charity, all of the corporal spiritual works of mercy, all of these things, they come second. They come second. 
they flow from the church's first and primary mission of, of, of adoration, of worship, of giving praise and glory and worship to Almighty God. Like, first things first and second things second. The moment we start putting second things first and first things second, everything falls apart in the church and for the world, in our lives and everywhere else. First things first, second things second. If you don't like that, don't blame me. Blame Jesus. This is how he set it up. This is what he's saying to us in this gospel today. This is what he's saying in the gospel today. Like we, the church, we are not a spiritualized NGO. We are not here primarily to serve humanity. That's not why we exist. We're here first and foremost to worship God. To worship God. We are not the church of nice. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We're not the church where it's just nice to be nice and it's just nice if we're all nice. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says the first and greatest commandment when he was asked the question, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. This is, if you will, the vertical beam of the cross. The vertical beam has to go in first. The vertical beam has to be first. It has to be established first. And then what does he say next? The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal beam. That's the horizontal beam. You hang the crossbar, the horizontal beam, on the vertical post. You try and do it in a reverse order, you're never going to build a cross. You're never going to have Christianity. But here's the practical question, right? Like, what does this actually mean, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does that mean? I'll tell you. It means forget the rest of your interests. Forget your hobbies. Forget your preoccupations. All of that's got to go. You need to focus on God alone. No more TV, no more movie, no more sports, no more golf, no more gardening. Let your yard, just let it go. Let your friends go. Let it all go. Just focus on God. I'm just kidding, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Okay, just making sure. No, here's what, here's what we need to hear. That Lurking behind what Jesus says when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, Lurking behind that is this presupposition that you and I, that we have first fallen in love with God, if I can put it that way. I know that might sound odd, but it was G.K. Chesterton who said that let your Christianity be less of a theory and more of a love affair. Like we are meant... We are meant to fall in love with God. I mean, think about it. Like, only a love that penetrates to the depth of the heart is capable of generating in me a response like what Jesus calls for. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, with your whole being, with everything that you are. Let him have access to everything that you are. Respond to him with everything that you are. What kind, what could account for that? 
only a love that has reached the depths of my humanity. You know, as I was praying through all of this, I was reminded of a story I heard when I was in seminary, the story of Father Pedro Arupe, who is, he's, he's, he's described as the second founder of the Jesuits, right? You've got Ignatius Loyola and Pedro Arupe. Pedro Arupe was the vicar general for the Jesuits, and this is years ago, and he was speaking at a Eucharistic Congress, right? Like, much like what we're going to have here in the United States next year. And in the midst of this Congress, there's all these preachers and speakers and people giving all of these sophisticated theological talks and up in the sky kind of cloud-like theology. People very impressed by big words like post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? Someone asked him finally during a break, they're like, Father, could you, could you please give us something practical? Could you tell us something practical? And he gets up there and he kind of has his notes and he sets them off to the side and he just begins to say, there's nothing more practical than finding God, than falling in love in a quite absolute and final way. Then he added this, what you are in love with, what seizes your imagination will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what will you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, who you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love. Stay in love. And it will decide everything. How, how does one fall in love? Like, how do, you, how do you plan for it? You can't. You don't. That's why we say things like, I fell in love. Right? It's something that happens to you. There's no five-step plan for falling in love with God. But there is this. It's the wisdom of Mother Teresa to her daughter. Put yourself in a place to be found. Put yourself in a place to be overwhelmed. Put yourself in stillness and silence. Put yourself in the presence of Jesus. I just want to ask us very practically tonight if we've fallen in love with God. And I'm not asking it to shame anybody, to judge anybody. I'm asking it so that we have an awareness of where we're at. Am I still doing this Christianity thing? Am I showing up Sunday after Sunday because it's the right thing to do? Or am I showing up because I'm in love with the God who beckons me here? Am I showing up because I was taught from the earliest age, if I don't show up, it's a mortal sin, I'm going to go to hell if I don't do it? Or am I showing up because it's the only place I could imagine being? Am I here because of duty or am I here because of love? And if it's out of duty, that's fine. It's a beautiful starting point. But do you know that he's inviting you to fall in love with him? Do you know that he's inviting you to fall in love with him? And if that's where we're at, I want to invite us to, to ask him, to ask Jesus, who is love, to ask him this serious question. I beg you, Lord, I beg you to overwhelm me with the beauty of your love for me. He doesn't love y'all. He doesn't love groups of people. He loves individuals. He loves you. There is a particularity to his love for you. 
He loves you personally. Right? He says things like, I know how many hairs are on your head. What a ridiculous thing to know. But that's what love does. Love is that interested. Do you know his particular love for you? If you, if you don't, again, no judgment, but ask him. Lord, reveal to me, show me, overwhelm me with the beauty of your love for me. Help me to just actually see this crucifix. Because here unfurled is the revelation of his love for you. I know we see it, but do we really see it? Do we really see it? Overwhelm me again today, Lord, with your, the beauty of your love for me. Because we can't, we can't live today on yesterday's graces. We can't just be coasting on fumes of like, yeah, I had this powerful retreat a few years ago, and boy, that was great a few years ago. <laughs> Ask him again today. We need to hear it over and over and over again. I mean, just like, how often do you need to eat every day? How often do you need to hear him tell you that he loves you every day? Every day. The apostles, the apostles who changed the world, they, they didn't do it because they were good strategists. They didn't do it because they had tons of money. They, didn't, they weren't able to do it because they had all the right ideas or because they were good theologians. They changed the world because they were overwhelmed with God's love for them. And out of that experience issued forth a desire to love Him in return with everything that they had. And that changed the world. Friends, let us be overwhelmed by his love for us today. Amen.